we're learning in real time. It's messy and it's uncomfortable and it hurts sometimes because I say dumb shit. All of us are ignorant at the end of the day, but there's no conversation taking place where we can learn how to hold space for each other. And so that's what we're doing now. But it's about learning. And I think at its core, every man wants to be better. And if we flip it on its head and we use the same terminology in the system, the masculine traits that we are told we need to have in order to feel X enough, man enough, and we flip them on on their heads and we use them to go in and to uh, explore, like I say in my TED talk, our hearts, explore the things that aren't working, then you actually find the answers are inside of us. <laughs> Hello, friends. This is the Let's Give a Damn podcast. Welcome. I'm so glad you're here. On this show, I chat with people who are living meaningful lives, people who give a damn. If you love this show, please hit subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify. It would mean the world to me. My guest today is, drumroll please. Okay, fine, no actual drumroll, but know that this guest deserves a drumroll. My guest today is the incredible Justin Baldoni. Justin is most well known for his role as Raphael on Jane the Virgin, or maybe you know Justin from his incredibly popular docu-series called My Last Days, a fascinating series about living and dying. Over the past few years, Justin has done a lot more directing than acting. He made Five Feet Apart in 2019, Clouds in 2020. And a couple of years ago, Justin founded Wayfarer, a TV and film studio whose mission is to develop and finance projects that can serve as true agents for social change. And if all that wasn't enough, Justin founded Man Enough a couple of years ago as well. Man Enough is a movement founded on the belief that by undefining traditional roles and traits of masculinity, men will be able to realize their potential as humans and their capacity for connection. Man Enough began as a web series and is now developed into an incredible book, which launches one week from the release of this podcast conversation. It releases on April 27. Please pause this podcast right now. If you're listening in the week leading up to that, pause this podcast right now and go pre-order Man Enough immediately. And as always, I encourage you to order from your local bookstore. Skip the big box stores. Go to manenough.com slash books right now to learn more about the book and to find out where you can buy signed copies of the book. And while we're on the topic of Man Enough, Justin gave a great talk at TED Women in 2017 called Why I'm Done Trying to Be Man Enough. It's been viewed millions and millions of times, and it's a must-watch for absolutely everyone. I'll have the link in the show notes, or you can just Google it. Before my chat with Justin a couple of weeks ago, I read an advanced copy of Man Enough and found it fascinating and incredibly helpful. In my conversation with Justin today, we talk about family, parenting, masculinity, obviously. We briefly go through each section of the book. We talk about spirituality and so much more. Bottom line, my friends, Justin Baldoni is an absolutely stunning human and damn giver, and I can't wait for you to hear our conversation. Before we jump into this conversation, a quick reminder that you can anytime and for any reason, email me at hello at letsgiveadam.com. I love hearing from you. And now, let's get right into my conversation with the amazing Justin Baldoni. Let's go. Justin Baldoni, welcome to the Let's Give a Damn podcast. How are you? Hey, man, I'm good. I'm good. I'm happy we're finally doing this. Same here. It's been a couple of years in the making, and I am <laughs> a huge, I'm a huge fan of who you are, what you do, and I'm excited that we get to. I've heard you talk about all of your stuff in other, you know, interviews and stuff, but I'm glad we get to talk about it because there's things that I want to know. And so I get to ask, this is my hour to ask you what I want. Hey, and I'm, buddy, this is this is your hour. You can ask ask anything you want. Well, I will take you up on that. Let's let's start super light though, because this has been a hell of a year. We're we're still in a pandemic. I said super light, and then talked about. Hold hell on, of a wait, year. yeah, I was going to say you want to start super light with the pandemic. Well, I was going to ask about your family and different <laughs> things like that, but then I was like, oh shit, we're in the middle of a pandemic still. Um, okay, so this year you went from uh, you know 
being out and about, you know, making all sorts of stuff, like probably, I don't know, were you at, even with all your busy schedule, were you at home quite a bit or were you out quite a bit? And then when you were home, you were trying to be like really present. How, what was that arrangement before the pandemic started? Well, before the pandemic started, I was never home. Right. You were filming up in, uh, you were filming in Canada or something, right? Well, yeah. Well, before the pandemic hit, I had directed my last film, Clouds, which, uh, so we were all in Montreal, Quebec, um, for about four months, I think. And, um, and then before that, you know, it's, I was, you know, I was on Jane the Virgin. Yep. So that, that was, that ended in May. So I had a little break between Jane and, um, in clouds, but I was also building a new company. Right. So, yeah. So to answer your question, you know, when I was home, it was like, how can I be present? Um, and then the pandemic hit and everything changed for us because I was also, I was finishing clouds. So I had to start finishing clouds at home. Um, and it was, and so, you know, we were basically like inventing all of the ways to finish a big movie from home. Yeah. Um, and that was challenging. And then I also, uh, I had to finish my book. So then the book deadline came. And so I was basically home, but I was locked away in our, you know, we, we had a, a really sweet, we did, we just moved uh, to the country, but we built this really sweet home right in the middle of the city. And it was tiny. It was, you know, it's 2000 square feet and, and a, and a house that's small, you can't get away. Uh, yeah. So, you know, I was, I was tucked in our little, you know, 10 by 12 guest room yep. with like a desk uh, against the window. I got one of these like little window desks where you essentially like with suction cups, put it's it suction against the window. Suited, right? I've seen those. Yeah. Yeah. It was like on shark tank, right? Yep. Yep. I've uh, seen that one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'm a sucker for that stuff, man. I'm like, in that house, I was like, okay, how, what can I, how can I be a minimalist, but also have everything that I need in this, in this house. But the problem was that like, you know, the kids were like 10 feet away. And, uh, and so it was really challenging because daddy was home, but he wasn't. Yeah. So, uh, not that we're starting nice and light, but yeah, no, it was a lot, man. It was a really, really hard, tricky thing. And also like just the process of writing a book is just, it's like, it's, it's therapy, you know, on acid. Uh, so you're just pouring your heart out into these pages and all the while thinking like, you suck. You can't do this. What well, no yeah, one's going to read your book. Why are you doing this? Time, right. Yeah. Uh, so it was, it was, a, it was quite a process, man, on top of the fear and, you know, wiping down all the, all the, anything that comes in the house and not seeing anybody. It was just, it was just a lot. So in a book is a book is different. Correct me if I'm wrong. At least I have a lot of writer friends and I'm in the middle of writing a book right now. Well, that's a lie. I'm in the middle. I'm at the beginning stages and having a hell of a time getting like really into it. Yeah. But, but I'm in the middle of it and I have lots of friends who have written books and there's something different about writing. Like obviously you've made films and you've been in shows and stuff. That's there's a permanence there, right? It's always out there, but books yeah. are different. It's like a, it's a printed thing that even yeah. if there are revisions, maybe, you, maybe you said something really stupid in this one and they, they fix it later that those, however many thousands of copies with that mistake in there, it's out there. You can never get that back. So I'm sure that's, part of Are you it. trying to make me feel better? No, your book, your, 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 your book's amazing. <laughs> my point is, all I can think of is all I can think of is you're naming all of my anxiety. And I'm like, yeah, that's actually exactly how it is. You're like, wow, did we all miss the typo? Oh, did I actually feel that? Do I feel that way now? And, and look, I reserved the right in the book to change my thoughts and feelings as 100%. I'm on a journey. Right. Um, you know, and it's something actually, I, I, something I learned from watching Glennon Doyle and something she does mm, and did. Yeah. Um, but, but yes, of course it's different than a movie. Now with my movies, I pour my heart and my soul into them. I think it's one of the reasons why they work in the way that they do, because they make you feel, and my goal is to make people feel so, but so much of the movies is me, but it's different because movies are, I'm the orc, I'm the, I'm the conductor, right? I'm, you know, the actors and the cameras, these are all instruments. And in my symphony, the book, there is no protection. It is just me. Right. It is, it is, it is written word printed. These are my thoughts and feelings. This is my shit. And the whole book also is an, is an exploration of vulnerability. So, so on top of that, yeah. Like the idea of like, okay, I can already think of 10 things that I wish I didn't put in the book because in two months I've changed. So, uh, 
it's it was a lot and i and i tried to get out of it multiple times i'm not gonna lie i tried i i was like looking for any possible way that i could sabotage needing to finish writing the book so that i didn't have to uh, uh put this out in the world but at the end of the day the reason i did it was out of service and it was because i just believed it could be useful and helpful because i never had a book like this to read mm. i never had this modeled so it was therapeutic. It was for myself. It was for the world. And that's what kept me on it. But boy, did I want to, did I want to, I did, I want to back out of it multiple times. No, I, 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 the, the book is, it's the perfect time for it. I, I really believe that obviously 10 years ago would have been a great time to talk about being man enough as well. And in the future, it'll be the same thing. But right now, I mean, I'm thinking, I'm thinking in real time, I'm thinking just two days ago, a yeah. young man murdered eight people, six of whom were Asian women. And right, right away, right? You see the conversation happening in the media. You see certain people trying to uh, downplay what happened. He just had a sexual addiction and this. He had a bad day, right? He had, oh my God. I literally, I got physically sick to my stomach when I heard that sheriff who now it's come out that he's like posted stuff about the, the China virus. He like the, he, he, po he posted a picture of a shirt about China brought this over here. So you, you kind of get his mindset, right? Kind of Georgia yeah. wearing a China t-shirt. Like it, of course he's going to downplay that and say the kid just had a bad day and this is what he did. But you're having, I mean, you're looking at a 21 year old young man who yeah. was in an environment that Obviously, I don't know anything about this kid other than what we've seen. And I'm trying not to think about him nearly as much as I'm thinking about the victims. But you have to see already that he was in an environment that did not teach him how to be yeah. a, a, an actual real man, the kind of man you and I are talking about today, right? Because he was shamed, right? Like maybe he did have some sort of compulsion toward pornography and sexual exploits or whatever. But he lived in such a shame-filled environment that he had to hide it and go back to it and hide it and go back to it and figure out ways around it. And, 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 and I don't know, we don't know everything about the situation yet, but everything that happened came from him, I think, him not being uh, taught the kinds of stuff you're talking. Like, if he had this book two years yeah. ago, I would love well. to believe that this would not have happened. And you know what? And who knows if you would have read it. At the end of the day, and you were right, I think we should... I think we need to spend as little time talking about these people and these types of men as possible, because in, in many ways it's what they want, right? We're oh, giving yeah. them what they want. And, and really the focus should be on these eight people that, that is that whose lives were taken. Um, and that's just the, that's just the way that the sensational media works is we spend mm -hmm. all the time talking about the person who does it, not time talking about the person who was done too. And we do the same thing with women, right? Do the same thing with, you know, even in our language, we do the same thing with rape and sexual assault. And yeah, look, I, and who knows, man, I, I don't know if, I don't know if the book could have helped somebody like that. I, I'm really going, I'm really, I wrote this thing for, for guys in the middle, you know, there's always going to be people on the fringes mm. and you can't reach everybody. And, and despite my altruistic and distorted, you know, view that like, Oh, maybe I can. <laughs> the reality is I can't. Yeah. And but if you look at the middle, the, the, the group of men who are aware enough to know that something isn't working for them, mm. who are aware enough to know that they do have feelings that they can't express, or they don't know why they get angry about certain things, or they don't know why they interrupt the women in their lives or talk down to certain women, or why they struggle with certain things, or why they can't ask for help, or what their resistance is to therapy, or whatever it is. There are so many men right in the middle um, that are open, that are good men who want to become better men, better humans, better husbands, better fathers, better friends. These are the men that I am looking to reach and mm. looking to talk to. I, I can't, you can't change everybody. Um, I'm not even trying to change anybody. What my, the purpose and the reason why I wrote Man Enough is is because at the end of the day, we have to start having conversations about the barriers that we build and the armor that we put on that prevents connection with other people and more importantly, with ourselves. And for so long, we have been living in a, at a time, in a place, in a culture that teaches us as boys that we have to put on armor 
that we don't even realize we have on by the time we hit puberty. Mm. And, um, and that armor is the very thing that prevents us from living truly fulfilling, happy lives that prevents us from developing our emotional IQ from, from, um, from building compassion and empathy, right? It's, it's the thing, it's the, it's the block, it's the mask that we put on and, you know, and, and look, a lot of, who knows, maybe there are young boys and men, which is one of the reasons why we're going to turn man enough. We are turning man enough into a book for nine to 12 year olds as well. Love it. Because that's where you reach those men. That's where you reach the boys, the, you know, before they turn into the guys that have had to repress their feelings for so long and are so misunderstood and have white privilege and think that the world owes them something and that they are the victims. And then, you know, they have all of this rage because that's the only socially acceptable thing they're allowed to have. And eventually they become one of the mass shooters, because we know for one thing, all of them are white men. Um, And then they do something like that. Well, you reach them when they're nine. You reach them at that age. You don't reach them when they're two years before they're going to do something like that because they've been, they're, you know, they're too far gone at that point. What we need then is just better laws. We shouldn't, these people shouldn't have access to these things. But before that, it's about teaching men that who they are as they are is enough. I'm so glad you went there because that was one of the first places I wanted to start was this is obviously for men. And I'm, I also, I'm, I'm also glad that you made that distinction. I can't save anyone. I can't reach everybody. I'm trying to go for those men in the middle, those that are willing to hear, right? That's a great observation because there are people Mm. that there are men that are not going to read this book. The second one, the second one, what you just said is the, the secret. I'm so glad you're going to make this young, this book for young boys and young men because yeah. I'm thinking about my son who is, who is six. I have a six, a seven and an eight year old, all th- the three kids. And well, you were busy. Yeah, we were, we're, we're finished being busy <laughs> now, uh, in that way. Now we're just crazy busy taking care of three kids that are that close together. But it's all about that. When I started, let's give a damn four years ago, I had tons of parents coming out of the woodwork saying, okay, this is cool. This let's give a damn thing. You're going to be reaching tons of people with your message and all that. But what about kids? How can we get, let's give a damn for kids? Because I feel like my job is, and maybe this let's is give a darn, well. let's give a darn. That's right. And it is, I am helping adults undo a lot of shit that they learned growing up, right? That's all yeah. I'm doing is helping people re like rewire their brains and their hearts and their souls with kids though. They're sponges. They're ready to go. My kids are incredible. They love people so well. They are at peace with what's going on around them. They give a damn. They want to help out. They love people. And that's what I want for all the kids, right? So same thing with this whole man enough thing is like, how about boy enough? Like if you learn that when you're younger, you're going to save yourself a world of trouble later on. Yeah. It's this idea that boys, you know, instead of saying boys will be boys, we should be saying boys will be human, Mm. you know? And, and that's really, uh, and that's what the message is going to be for the younger boys. But um, I love it. So before, yeah, man. before we get into, I, I want to go through the book sort of like, not methodically, but I want to get into your brain and how the book sure. sort of developed. There's really good stuff in there. Before we get there though, this has been a multi-year journey, right? Because Man Enough is not just a book. It's been, if anybody's followed your sort of journey over the last few years, maybe not yeah. starting with the 2017 TED Talk, but uh, maybe that's where it started. I don't know. You tell me, but like to walk oh. us through this journey of, when you started having these conversations, it was a TED talk and then it was a TV show and you had these conversations. I watched them, you know, when they came out a couple, you know, year or two ago and they were just, oh, they were like a breath of fresh air. And so it's been this long journey. So why, why this topic and what's the journey been like? Yeah, it's a great question. I, you know, so man enough has been, the journey has been um, parallel to my journey. So I just decided to take the journey in real time. And, you know, I just happened to have a little bit of, you know, whatever the hell you call it. I was on a TV show. So you have followers and sure. some celebrity or influence or whatever, but I was, I was, I was just questioning things. I was, I had just become a father. I was thinking about what equality looks like. I was thinking about the world. I'd been, you know, I just got married a few years before that. And my wife and I had our struggles. A lot of them, you know, uh, were were because of my own barriers and the issues that I was trying to unpack and unlearn from, you know, my parents and my father and was that was passed down from his. And I was just kind of thinking about this whole thing and realizing that like there isn't a human being on this planet that's untouched by 
masculinity and by some of the pitfalls of it. And then, of course, there's this there's this polarizing political conversation, which I have no interest in being a part of, which is I'm just really interested in learning. I, I'm trying to understand and listen to what everybody's saying. Why are men so resistant? You know, and and why are women so angry? Why? And, and then and you start to like listen and observe and you take stock of your own stuff and you realize that there is a bigger thing at play here. There's this invisible force that's governing our actions and we don't even realize it. Um, and so many of the problems, and this is my deduction, so many of the problems that exist in the world can be traced back to the intersection of masculinity and racism. Mm. And, um, and now I'm at the place where I realize that you can't really separate the two. Um, you know, the world has been, especially in America, like we're, you know, we're, we're positioned to look at things from this patriarchal, you know, white supremic view of the world, because the system is put, the system is built to, to benefit folks that look like you or I. Um, and, and also that very same system that's causing so many people pain, so many women and, um, and, and people of color and uh, you know, gender non-conforming and non-binary folks and trans people, um, that same system that's that's literally killing people and and hurting other people is also hurting me. Mm. But it's hurting me in different ways. It doesn't work for anybody. And that's what I've learned is, you know, this idea of of me being a pussy or me being a girl or me being gay, a homophobic slur. If I'm not this thing, causes like damage irreparable damage that stays with us for our entire lives that influences our actions it governs our very existence but yet we don't name it or call it a thing because it isn't a thing to those of us that have privilege it's just the way the world works right and really the people that say that are the people that benefit the most from it everybody else is screaming from the top of their lungs this isn't working for me women are screaming from the top of their lungs like we just want to be able to walk to our cars and not be raped right. but yet one in four of us will in our lifetime and that's not including like just assault and if you look at and that's just white women if you look at the numbers for black and brown and people indigenous people of color and trans people your number you're like you just have a really good shot at just you know almost everybody is so mm-hmm. so again like people have been screaming hey we just want to be valued we just want to be safe we just want the right to vote i mean just think about history it's not yep. that long ago yeah it's really not that long ago that black folks had the right to vote that women have the, had the right to vote right we are like so the idea that we've just like made it that we've just like oh we're just arrived uh we've we we're, we're here now everything's fine history is just you know it's history we don't have to no no our grandparents were a part of that. Yeah. That's passed down. That's just that's just one generation passed down to us. So it's in all of us. And the system benefits the folks that look like you and me. And so for me, I'm like, wow, the system is working for me. It's working in my advantage in many ways. But at the same time, I'm miserable. Hmm. I'm suffering. Like I'm not happy because I feel like I have to acquire more and be successful, more successful and have this and this and this. That's all. That's not just capitalism. That's also, you know, that's masculinity and the patriarchy yep. and the intersection of the two of them. You know, I'm, I'm I'm not as happy in my marriage because I don't feel like I'm able to be truly vulnerable. I don't have enough. I don't have any guy friends that really know me. I'm getting lonelier. Like, why can't I be vulnerable? What's my what's my you know what's the reason why I don't want to go to therapy? Like, oh my god, I have a I have a predisposition to 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 like some sort of addiction or or uh, or a use of pornography i didn't even know that i had growing up wow i didn't realize i was medicating when i was 16 years old when i was like all of these things all of these thoughts that are just everywhere they were for me um they were all kind of locked into this puzzle about five six years ago where i looked at it and said oh my entire life is affected by this thing and it governs everything that i do it influences every decision that i make and uh and it does that for me the person who has the, the most to gain and benefit from the system, then what is it doing to everybody else? Mm-hmm. And that's what really um, took me on this journey. So it started with coming up with a show called Man Enough, which uh, was a roundtable show. Mm-hmm. Um, and I started shooting that uh, right before Harvey Weinstein 
hit and the me too moment um and movement uh kind of resurged sure uh with Toronto burke and and so i was already doing the show and then of course ted asked me to speak and i did the ted talk and then you know that became this this large thing and it's been seen all over the world and i feel so so grateful but again even the ted talk i wasn't ready for it i wanted to back mm-hmm. out of it i didn't think mm-hmm. what you know let a woman do it you know i i what do i have to say what do i have to offer but I understood, and what they explained to me was by being in the position of privilege that I'm in, and by using my voice as a straight white man and talking about these things, um, it was a service. And that's why I did it. And uh, and then from there, I just kept talking about it. And we, you know, we you know, I think we shot five, five or six episodes of Man Enough. It was a digital series. We did some we, it was like we had some branded content partners that never made it to t- TV. Our intention was to meet people where they were. And people saw it and they liked it, but we recognized that like women were watching it more than men or, you know, men were watching it through women. It wasn't, it wasn't like, it wasn't this thing that was going viral with men. Um, and then we also learned why. And so we studied it. We, we talked about it and eventually, um, I got approached with a book offer and I didn't want to do it. I eventually did it. And, um, and I kind of delayed it, delayed it, delayed it until I could delay it more that's where we got to now. But the journey for me has been learning in real time. So all, all along that way, whether it was, you know, just my, just taking account and stock of all of the things and what I was feeling to doing the show, to doing the TED talk, to writing the book. Now I'm doing a podcast, which is super intense. I'm doing the man in a podcast and I have a, I have two co-hosts and we're talking with, um, you know, activists and celebrities and we're learning in real time. It's messy and it's uncomfortable and it hurts sometimes because I say dumb shit. Yeah. All of us are ignorant at the end yeah. of the day, but there's no conversation taking place where we can learn how to hold space for each other. And so that's what we're doing now, but it's about learning. And I think at its core, every man wants to be better. Yep. And if we use the same, if we, if we flip it on its head and we use the same terminology in the system, the masculine traits that we are told we need to have in order to feel X enough, man enough, and we flip them on on their heads and we use them to go in and to uh, explore, like I say in my TED Talk, our hearts, explore the things that aren't working, then you actually find the answers are inside of us. <laughs> you know, we can we can be brave enough to listen and hold space, right? Yeah. We could be strong enough to ask for help. It's all here, and that's the journey that I've been on, and that's kind of, it's kind of what's led us to where we are. So much to so much to go go back and touch on, but I'll I'll, I'll try to be careful because we don't have a ton of time. Going back to the TV show that ran for a few episodes, you said that you you all found out pretty quickly that a lot of women were watching it, or that the many men that were watching were watching it through their you know their partners, their spouses, or whatever. And you said you did some research as to why, like, so what were some of the things that came up? Uh, Let me tell you what I real quickly before you say it, like, as I'm thinking about it, as you tell me that I'm a different kind of guy. So I love, I love that shit. And like, I'm super into it. But if even looking back on how I was raised as a young man, it was very much the traditional, you know, John Wayne, masculine masculinity, right. Which is like, you know, eat meat, go hunting, like, you know, uh, don't complain, don't hard. complain, don't whine, work hard, just shut up and do it. And yeah, definitely don't cry. Don't share your feelings, that sort of a thing. So I would guess that if, if, you know, most men that I know came from that and they're in their journey, some like it, some are still in it, but a lot of them are trying to get out of it. But I, I, I would imagine that seeing some of those conversations happening might push them away because, because they don't, they don't know, not that they don't want to be vulnerable. They don't know how they don't have a fucking clue how to open up and be that vulnerable. They're scared of what people will say. They're scared of what people will think they're scared of what people find out about their past or what they've done or how they're doing stuff. Now it's a whole, it's a whole, whole mess. I'm sure. I mean, that was a part of it. I think that, you know, it was a first shot. No one had really done what we were doing. And I was, again, using myself as the, as the entry point and similar to the book using kind of my stuff as a way to like let people in. But, but at the end of the day, the biggest issue I think that we had with that show was that everybody agreed. And, and it's like, you know, there, it was, a, it was a bit aspirational. Like the, you know, every, it was like good looking kind of entertainment people sure. sitting around a table talking. And, and I think for most, for a lot of American men that could feel like 
out of touch. Um, and, and that, you know, and we did our best and I reached out to people I knew and, you know, we, I funded, I funded that thing on my own at first and mm. risked my company. Cause I'm like, I just believe that this needs to happen. Um, and look, we can't reach all men and that's the whole thing. <laughs> yeah. We're never going to reach everybody and we're never going to reach uh, everybody at once. And, you know, and I looked at that and it did a lot of good, but at the same time, men also, men are not going to rush into, uh, like how to have uncomfortable conversations with themselves or their other, it's not like of all of the things that I think a man thinks about during the day, that's not one of them. And so why would they consume that content? You don't, you don't think about it until you have to. Sure. Um, because honestly, we're busy with a lot of other stuff for the most part. I mean, trying to provide all the pressures, all the things that we're talking about in the show, these are the things that are in the back of our mind. It's life and death for a lot of men out there in the world right now. What's going to make, like, they're not going to sit down to watch five dudes talking about their feelings Mm. and that's fine. And I recognize that. So, so, um, you know, so that's why, it's why now we're doing the podcast. That's why I wrote the book. People listen to audio books now. You know, you can spend 30 minutes here. You can spend an hour there. You can have, you know, a lot of, I know commutes are the thing at the moment. Right. Um, but also I think men like to listen to things in private. You know, there's a, there's an element of uh, something that could be embarrassing if somebody catches you watching something um, or, uh, you know, or, or you comment like as an example, when the Ted talk came out, women were sharing it like crazy. Yeah. Proud of it. Men. The only thing they shared generally was to insult me or bash it oh, privately. They messaged me. And again, image is everything. The perception of what it means to be a man. It's the performative aspect of masculinity. Privately, I was getting thousands of messages. Wow. Publicly, I was getting thousands of negative messages. And that's the whole thing. Masculinity is the very thing. It's the invisible force that causes us to act different than we feel. So like, uh, we're just looking at this and we're saying, okay, well, the way to reach men is privately uh, by creating an intimate experience with them mm-hmm. or through the women in their lives that they care about, that are worried about them. Um, and I don't care how we reach them. I just want to reach them. So that's what we're doing now. We're, we're creating alternative ways. There's a book, there's a podcast, there's going to be um, there's going to be other versions of, of the show and of shows or podcasts that are really targeted to people um, that represent uh, the, you know, the demographic or um, the sexual orientation um, of somebody or the race of somebody um, so that they can hear from their own, for someone that looks and feels like them, not from mm-hmm. this like privileged white dude, <laughs> what mm-hmm. it means to be a man. Because what it means for me to be a man is going to be very different than what it means for my, for my best friend, Jamie, who's a black man mm. and he's 51. Some of it is there's intersections. It's the same, the same forces, but our experiences are vastly different. Right. And, um, and so these are all just things that we're learning. And again, at the end of the day, we're, we just want to be helpful. We just want to be of service. We want to, we want to, we want men to be happier, to feel better, to, to, to treat the people in their lives better. We want men to not kill themselves at the rates that they're killing themselves. We want men to show up for the women in their lives. So the women don't die at the rates that they're dying. Yep. It affects everybody. And the butterfly effect, I believe, of touching one man and and having him recognize these forces and and be aware and take account of his actions and 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 go deep and, and understand the process of what it means to be vulnerable and get help or go to AA, whatever that is, that butterfly effect effect, um, I don't think is measurable or yeah, quantifiable right. because that one man interacts with how many people in day, how many women in his in his lifetime. Mm -hmm. And that's the work, man. That's why we're doing it. Well, and I want to affirm the, at least as a spectator on this, this is during the last three or four years, I have seen every, everything that you've done around man enough, whether it's the Ted, Ted talk or the show and now the book and, and other things, it's all, it all feels, and I'm not just saying this, it all feels like bathed in humility. It all feels like we're sharing like Justin and these other men are sharing their experience, who they are, what they're doing, what they're learning, but none of us have it figured out. And I think that's been the key to success so far. And will be the key to success, even in this book and in the podcast, I'm sure is we want to help you 
unlearn all this bad, terrible shit that you've learned in your life. We want you to view masculinity differently, but we're not saying we have figured it all out and we don't have the way, right? Especially now, I think with, you talked about your black friend, Jamie, 51 years old, totally different experience today. I, I would, it seems like a really interesting time in history to have this conversation because being a man looks totally different for so many different, I mean, you have gay men, you have trans men, you have, then you have uh, different skin colors and ethnic backgrounds and experiences. So you have to like approach this. And again, I'm, I'm affirming that I think you do this to the best of your ability, at least what I can tell you have to approach this very, like, here are some things that I think apply to everybody that identifies as Mm -hmm. a man. And that wants that kind of has this masculinity about them, but you have to like, you have to take all this in and process it for yourself to figure out what it means for you. Right. Well, the whole point of the book is to undefining masculinity instead of redefining it simply means to make space for anybody who identifies as a man. Yep. Because the invisible line that is drawn before we're born the box that we're put into by redefining it would mean that that line has to keep being redrawn. And I have no interest in redrawing that line. Mm-hmm. I just want it to be gone. I think we have to remove the line, get rid of the box. And if you are a man and you identify as a man, then you are a man. Mm-hmm. You don't have to try to be anything else because you already are. And that's the message of the book. That's the point of the book. And, and yes, to your point, the experience looks incredibly different for every man. That's why I'm not your teacher and I'm not your guru. I'm not going to sell you a business class or, or, Hey, here's a, here's this special thing with me on how to be a better man. I have no interest in that. I don't have time for that. I want to make my movies and build my company with this. It's, Hey, this is the shit that happened to me. This is what didn't work for me. And this is how it affected me. I'm sure you have a similar story. And what I found is it doesn't matter if it's a trans man or uh, a gender uh, non-conforming person or a black man or a Middle Eastern man, um, someone who's 50 or someone who's 20. What I'm seeing is the themes are universal. The things I talk about in the book, the things that have happened to me, they're all universal themes. The outcome or the experiences might be different, but I'm sharing my story as an invitation for you to take a look at yours. And if you can take a look at your story and be like, oh shit, that happened to me. Mm-hmm. Oh, I had a similar experience to that. Oh, well then what else happened? And it'll start to get your brain moving. And again, and I say this early on, I don't believe masculinity is toxic. I love being a dude. I love being a man, mm-hmm. but I also don't want to be a man um, and, and have to disown the parts of me that are also considered feminine because those are also parts that I love of myself. I don't want to have to kill off those parts. Bell Hooks talks about um, the the act of psychic self-mutilation that men have to perform on ourselves in order to be seen as men. Hmm. We have to kill off a part of our humanity, part of our, our sensitivity, our compassion, our empathy, in order to be seen as a real man. Because we're, as men, like the way you were raised, we're not allowed to show our feelings. Mm-mm. We're not allowed to, to suck at something. We're not, we're not allowed to ask for help, right? You just learn by figuring it out. Just do it. Yep. Yep. You're not allowed to, you know, cry when you skin your knee. So where does all of those, where does all that pain go? Where does all the the doubt and the anxiety go? It goes somewhere. And then yet we wonder why white men, 21 year old white men go and kill people in mass shootings. Well, that's where it goes. It's pain. Yep. It's unrep- it's unexpressed pain and sadness and loneliness. It's why men kill themselves. It's why they do these terrible things. It's why they, it's why it's why they rape. It's why they sexually assault. It's why they hurt each other. It's all we're all affected by the same shit, and we got to call it out. And again, it's not toxic, but that shit left unexpressed becomes toxic. A cancer cell is no right. problem. We right. have them in our bodies they're, they're, until yeah, one we all day, have them. Yep. Until one day a trigger happens. And then suddenly, whether it's because of anxiety or pain or frustration or whatever we're dealing with, stress, something happens in the body, and then that cancer cell can reproduce, and that's when it becomes true cancer. Mm-hmm. You know, sure, sometimes it happens just on accident or it just happens in the body, but 
there's a trigger. Our body, something happens. And the same thing happens with masculinity. So I want to quickly, I don't want to give away too much from the book because I want everybody listening to buy it and we'll, we'll push it as hard as we can, but I want to uh, read, appreciate it. I want to read the chapter titles real quickly. Cause I think there it's sure. a really, it's a really interesting and I think helpful progression. Then I want to ask, then I, I want to ask two questions about the book. One is I want you to talk about your, and I'll tell you now, just so in case you have to think about it, I want you to t- talk about your favorite chapter that, that whether it was the content of the chapter, the favorite, your, your favorite one to write, to really like get out. Right. But I also, and maybe they're the same one, but I want, I want to spend time on the dad enough raising children when I'm still growing up chapter. Right. Sure. That's important for me. And for the demographic, we have all kinds of people listening to the show, but most of them are millennials somewhere in there. Lots of them are raising small kids. And there are a lot of dads, like it is still major- mostly women listen to this podcast, but it is a lot of dads that are listening. And Great. so- Hi, I'll women have, and dads. Yeah, yeah, I like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and so I'll start with that. What was your favorite chapter to write and why? Oh, my favorite chapter to write. Um, I liked writing Loved Enough. I have a lot of thoughts about love, mm. dating, and marriage. Um, I'm also in it, man. I mean, I'm married. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we've been married. We've been, my wife and I have been together for nine and a half years. So, uh, so I'm in it. Um, I liked writing that. I liked writing the dad chapter. The problem is, though, man, the book is each chapter is its own book. And it was a real big challenge because again, like dad enough is only a portion of my experience as a father. I don't even get into my son really. And, and the, and raising two children and, you know, there's so much more there. And I had to just kind of commit to just a part of the experience. And so I chose to focus on the part that leads up to it more than being in it. Sure. Um, but I, I enjoyed writing. I, I enjoyed, there's parts of every chapter I enjoyed writing. Sure. I enjoyed writing Loved Enough. The body image chapter I enjoyed writing um, because it was, it was nice to be able to get my story out in a way that wasn't like, because every time I talk about body image or butt muscle dysmorphia, everyone's always like, oh, boo-hoo. Oh, you're fine. Oh, look at you. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And it was nice to just be able to write without having to like interrupt somebody and be like, dude, let me just tell my story. Right. Uh, yeah, I'm insecure or like, you know, I got, you know, I'm 10 pounds heavier, 12 pounds heavier than I normally am, you know? And, uh, and then, and then have someone be like, oh, you can't even see it. You still, you're fine. Right. That's the thing. That's this thing that we do in our culture. Um, but again, I also have to recognize that I look a certain way and I have privilege. And so I can't just complain to everybody. Yeah. Um, you know, so, so yeah. I love it. I love it. So let's just for a minute or two, I, I mean, we've already talked about it even at the beginning and then just now a little bit, but let's spend just a minute or two because it's, it's also the dad enough chapter speaks to me. Uh, so many of them did. I mean, you mentioned the, you mentioned the one about body image. Like I, that's something that I have had to deal with as I've gotten older is not making excuses for, you know, the weight I've gained. Like when I, you know, before kids, before married, I was chiseled as a motherfucker, like worked out (laughs) two and a half hours. Like I was in the best shape of my life. And then I got married and we were poor at the time. So I was going to school full time, uh, working full time. You know, we, we were, weren't making a lot of money. So I was eating terrible food, you know, 12 years ago, we just weren't, we weren't thinking about the future. We were thinking about surviving now. And then we started having kids a couple years after that. And here we are, right? Like I'm not who I was 12 years ago. Right. And I think about it all the time. Right. But I've also had these really beautiful, sweet moments where I am really grateful for who I am. And I look at my body and I look at who I've become and I'm just happy that this journey has brought me here. And I'm not like, I'm I'm fine. Like I'm fine with where I'm at. Yes. I would love to carve out more of my day to work out and spend more time on myself. I work way too much. I stay up too late. I get up too early. There's a lot going on in life right now. I have way too much going on, but I had those moments of beauty and that chapter has helped me. And I hope it continues to help me and others. Like, yeah, just realize that I am 
like just as I am now in two years, I'd love to be in better shape because I want to be around for the next 40, 50 years. Right. There's nothing wrong with goals, right? There's nothing wrong with setting goals for yourself and desiring something. Yeah. You know, it's just, it's, but it's when our, if our, it's, if our physical body and the way that we look or the way that we perceive that other people think that we look is dictating our sense of self-worth and happiness, then that's the problem. Yeah. But there's nothing wrong with having a goal or wanting, you know, like it's just about asking yourself why, like I talk about in the book, the why ladder. It's like, if you ask yourself why you want to look good, okay, well, it could be just because you want to look good again. It could also be because you want to be able to have energy to run around with your kids. And you think that by working out and looking good, it's, you know, it's going to give you that energy. It doesn't matter what the answer is. So long as you don't look in the mirror every day and feel terrible about yourself and right. talk shit to yourself yeah, and, and have that like dictate your sense of self-worth or happiness. That's yeah. the thing. So goals are great. We need yeah. goals. I'm all for goals, but it's just about like, why, why are we, why are we doing the things that we're doing? Yeah. That's super helpful. Okay. I keep getting distracted. Raising children while I'm still growing up the dad chapter, that yeah. one is huge for me. So let's just spend a minute or two there. Um, sure. Cause that is such a wild thing. Like I am raising three human beings that I hope like wildly surpass anything I've ever been in life. Like I want them to be better. Yeah. I want them to be more loving. I want them to accomplish more. I want them to be happier with themselves. Like I want them to do so much. Right. And I'm still growing up. I'm 37. I think we're, the, we're around the same age, right? Like I'm yeah. 37. I'm, yeah. I'm 37. I've already done a lot of cool stuff in my life. I have a lot of cool stuff to come. But like, I am still figuring it out each and every day. So I think all the time, like my wife is a, she's 10 times better of a parent than I am. And I constantly like submit to her, like, Hey, help me. Like, I'm bad at this. Like I have a, I have a shorter fuse. I'm busier. I'm like, just, I'm, I was similar in that regard before the pandemic. I was, I'm a double extrovert. And so I love to be with people. It was always out of the house, traveling to and from doing projects. All And then all of a sudden I'm you know, and, and you talked about your 2000 square foot house. We, we live in a 985 square foot house. It's in the middle of Nashville. Right. So there's yeah. nowhere for me to go. Like I had to, like, I'm sitting in my shed right now, my dingy, like cinder block shed. And I had to make it my office. Cause I was like, I can't go anywhere for, for however long this lasts. And so it's truly been like, um, yeah, this, this whole idea of how do I raise kids and point them in the right direction while I'm still trying to figure out I'm still trying to tell myself which direction is the right direction. So yeah. help us, help me, help us. Cause I know you're going through it as well. So what, how, yeah. how do you work through that in your life? And first of all, yeah. And, and you, you, the one thing you brought up is, you know, even in that 2000 square foot house, it was, it was big and right, yet sure. still felt small. Right. 100%. And, 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 you know, so my, my, my heart goes out. So many people are living in less than even what you have. Right. Yeah, and yet right, they have, and yet they're figuring out how to have kids. And, um, you know, look, man, I, I think, I think the key to raising kids while you're still growing up is, is being willing to make mistakes in real time. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the purpose. That's the purpose of that book or that chapter, especially is, you know, my dad is amazing. He's an amazing man, but he was never taught to show his humanity. You know, he was taught to be impervious and to, to never show weakness. And so I never, and even though he was emotional and, and cried and, and showed love and told me he loved me, it was, he did so many things, right. The thing he did wrong was he never let me in. Mm. And so, mm. so I was as a kid having to like have intuition about where he was struggling or how he messed up or what was going on financially. And I could have had so many less fuck ups in my life had he just been open and honest with me about his fuck ups. Yeah. Yes. And yes, I think yes, that's yes. the key is like, you know, you know, we, we have this idea of parenthood and fatherhood, especially like, you know, you got to read all these books and you got to get ready. And then, you know, we don't want to mess up our kids, but that's impossible. We're going to mess up our kids because we're all messed up. Yep. There's not a person on this planet, the Dalai Lama, who isn't messed up. And by the way, the Dalai Lama isn't married and he doesn't have kids. So he might be perfect. He might be the spiritual guru of the world. Give him a life partner and two children. 
and then let me see how and let me see how he does. Hundred percent. Monks are awesome. Jay Shetty is one of my dear friends. Monks are fantastic. Come on down here, monks, and raise my kids for me. Yeah, you know, like this idea that like there's this spiritual way or perfection or way to do it, and that must it doesn't exist. And we're all we're always going to mess up our kids because all we're doing as parents is trying to heal the trauma that we experience as children. And the goal is to not is to do everything we can to not pass on that same trauma. And so the more we're aware of it, the more we're aware of how we were messed up as children, the more we can see in our parenting styles how repeating the same cycle and messing up our children the same way that we were messed up. So the key is simple. It starts with awareness. Mm. We just have to be aware. Now, the huge thing for me and the thing that I'm practicing that my dad didn't do for me is also then not trying to be perfect. Not not trying to get it right in that way of like, you know, oh, I can't, we don't want to show the kids this. You know, for us, when my wife and I lose it, we don't lose it very often. But when my wife and I get into like heated arguing matches mm-hmm. and the kids are around, I don't stop. Yep. Yep. And, and what we say is, you know what? Daddy's very upset right now, but it doesn't mean that I don't love mommy. And I'm not disrespecting mommy and mommy's, Mommy's getting very upset with daddy. Right. Because daddy said something stupid. Yep. You know, actually, we try not to say stupid because we call that the S word because the kids repeat it. But in general, it's real time learning. It's the same thing that I'm doing on Man Enough. We have to be okay with showing our humanity. And part of showing our humanity is being brave enough to be vulnerable and show that we are, that we don't have the answers, that we're fucking up, that we're learning in real time, that mommy and daddy don't have it all figured out. When daddy's struggling, when he's stressed, he can talk about it with the kids, even when they're five years old, yep. because the kids need to know that if they get stressed, it's okay. The problem happens in our children when they think that they're not allowed. There's no space to feel human yeah, because they didn't have it modeled. Yep. So they go through life and they have these feelings and in the back of their mind, they didn't see their mommy or daddy go through that, or daddy told them not to cry or that, you know, get back on the horse and all these things. And so they feel like they have to do that. So mm-hmm. what do they do with all the shit that they're feeling? It goes right back to the conversation we had earlier. So that's the big thing for me is being willing to be brave enough to be vulnerable and imperfect in front of my children. Because what I don't want is for them to ever feel like there's a barrier between them and me. Like I am evolved or above them, or I'm a superhero in the suit in the, in that chapter, I talk about the superheroes fall from grace. Mm-hmm. Every one of us at one point in our lives have experienced the fall from grace, either early in childhood or as an adult of our parents. And what I argue is that they need to fall into grace. By falling into grace as parents, we are falling into our humanity. We don't ever have to fall. There's no pedestal that we're on. We're mm-hmm. equal. I love it. And, and my children can see my flaws and in turn be okay with theirs. And we can meet on a human level. And I hope if I do this right, that that will create a friendship at one point. Yes. Versus this dynamic, this invisible barrier that so oftentimes um, keeps us away from our children or keeps our children away from us because we we don't know how to, you know, once they're not our kids anymore, we can't control them. There's this thing that like prevents intimacy. Mm. And I crave intimacy with my parents. And so I'm trying to heal that intimacy. I'm trying to heal that stuff to to recreate that intimacy that I had when I was a kid. But now it's from a human perspective. So my dad calls me when he's struggling now. And it's changing our relationship uh, because I've been begging him. I'm like, let me see the parts of you that you're you're ashamed of. Let me see the parts of you that you struggled with. Dad, if you would have told me you were struggling financially or you made a mistake, I wouldn't have God, I wouldn't have bought a house at 23 and had to go into foreclosure at 25 because you would have told me and prepared me that you screwed up, but he hid his mess ups. Like yeah. so many parents do mm-hmm. to protect our children and protect our egos and protect this idea that we are the savior. We're the parent. We know what's best. I think the best way to parent a kid is by showing them as my therapist says our dirty, rotten selves. And letting them know how imperfect we are, but we're trying. And we can model that behavior by showing up, 
by learning, by reading books, by asking our friends, by talking to other parents, asking what's working for them. And, and also the, the uh, taking refuge in community because like parents yeah. also right now, yeah. like, I don't believe like Western civilization, we're totally backwards. Yes, we are. Like look at the indigenous cultures, look at, Af- look at like, look at Africa and, and, you know, and these Latin American countries today, they, they parent in community communities yes, and they're so much happier <laughs> because here we are stuck in our houses in a patriarchal society where generally the women are doing all of the work yep. and suffering. And, 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 you know, we have men can't even do, we can't even do the fucking laundry Yep. and women are raising our children and we're off, we're off, you know, suffering in our own ways, thinking we have to do all this work, but no one's happy. Mm. We have to rely on community too. So then it's like reaching out and talking to other parents and, and being together and bringing people in, <clears throat> excuse me. And, and looking and learning from other people versus just thinking that, you know, we're going to do our best because then that's when we disconnect. That's when we're not present. That's when we lose ourselves with sports and ESPN and turn that shit on and just lose ourselves in the game and don't want to be bothered and have our beer. That's what our parents did. Yeah. That's when we lose ourselves now today and our iPhones and on Instagram and TikTok and social media, they're distractions to keep ourselves from feeling when in reality, if we allow ourselves to feel we allow our children to see us feel, then not only are we healing from our own wounds, from our, from our childhood, but we're preventing theirs. Mm. Oh God, we don't have enough time. Uh, there's so much I want to say, but that was just super. I mean, that was a sermon right there, brother. That was a sermon that I, 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 I needed falling into grace is this tremendous idea, right? That I think we would all be much better off. Um, and yeah, I mean, we're trying to do that with our kid. I'll just say this briefly, and then we'll move on and close our time together today. We're trying to do that with our kids, man. Like we fuck, I fuck up in my kids in front of my kids all the time. And yeah. we, we intentionally chose, that's a very intentional thing. Like we need to do this. So they'll always feel comfortable coming to us when they fuck up. Right. And the, the reason that I'm even extra okay with fucking up in front of them is because they have seen me apologize to them to get down on their level and no excuses. I am so sorry for what I said, what I did that was not right. And I, I see the fruit of that each and every day in them, the way that they deal with stuff there. Well, you're teaching, well, you're teaching them when you do that, you're teaching them that you made a mistake, that it's okay to make mistakes. And you're also teaching them how to apologize and take Mm. accountability for their mistakes. And that's really important. That's what, yeah. I mean, those are two secrets to life right there. Yeah. You know, yeah. making a mistake and taking accountability of it and apologizing for it. Do those things. We'll have a lot less divorces. Hell yeah. Right. Yeah. Totally agree. It's really cool, man. Let's wrap up with this. Uh, you are part of the Baha'i faith. Yeah. Um, I am a Christian, a, a very reluctant Christian these days because uh, many of my brothers and sisters are the worst perpetrators of the most horrible things we see in society. And it's really hard to be a Christian these days, but I've always hey, listen, said, this. it's hard. It's hard to be any, it's hard to be any religion. We have messed up religion to such a massive extent, but I, I, I know what, I know but, the core of what you're getting at. Yeah. But, but, but I feel like, you know, I, I know at this point in my life, I've met some really incredible Baha'i people. I mean, I, rain and holiday and goal Reese and Devin, I know goal Reese and, like there's just so many amazing behind rain introduced me to a couple of people here in Nashville. And I've just had, it feels like the, if I was to ever leave Christianity, it would be for the Baha'i faith. Here's why <laughs> there's there. It seems, well, first of all, it's, it's really beautiful and it feels very peaceful, but also the Baha'i people that I know don't take it so seriously. Not, not in that they do take it seriously as a, as a faith, but they don't take yeah. who they are so seriously that a lot of the things that have happened in religion, when you take everything so seriously and you act like you figured it out in this holy book you're holding is the end all be all to all things forever. That's when things start to fall apart. And I don't see that in the Baha'i faith. Uh, maybe I'm wrong and we don't have enough time to really like parse that out. But I guess I wanted to end with this. Um, how has the Baha'i faith like held you and kept mm. you and kind of prepared you for this work that you're doing now with man enough. Well, I mean, it's the only reason I'm doing the work. 
I'd be a terrible person if it were not for the Baha'i faith. I, I would have been a, I would have been sucked into, to all of the worst aspects of masculinity. You know, um, I'd be filled with toxicity <laughs> and what the Baha'i faith, and you know, look, the Baha'i faith has all of these principles that really, um, help one govern their existence. Right. And this, the same invisible forces and rules of masculinity the Baha'i faith has its own invisible kind of forces and rules that, that really are there to guide us. And, you know, the key, one of the keys for me is the independent investigation of truth. Mm. And, and that's one of the main principles of the Baha'i faith, which is so cool if you think about it, which means that one cannot learn um, without investigating truth. You don't just adapt something or adopt something because your mom and dad said it or did it, or because this person over there told you to, right? That's like, that's like retweeting an article before you read it. Yep. You don't just do it. Mm -hmm. you, you have to actually investigate truth for yourself. And what I love about that is it applies to everything. It applies to our own faith. It applies to uh, it applies to to policy and politics and and life and work. And also, it applies for me into looking and questioning masculinity and investigating what it means to actually be a man, where that comes from, and it's given me the permission to ask questions. So you know, at the end of the day, for me. The faith, if it can be distilled down to something, it's about service and love. And you can't perform service without love. So it's really distilled down to love. And the idea that all of us are here to serve. Mm. We're here to serve each yes. other. Yes. That's the core of all of it. Even when we disagree, even in disagreement, we're told as Baha'is to be of service. Even if there's something that, you know, one could think was was uh, contradictory to something that we believe in. We're told um, if that person is suffering, you go lay your life down for that person. Well, that changes everything. I mean, everything. Then forget about that. So we might disagree on something, but I love you enough to take a bullet for you. That's the behind thing. Yeah. And, um, and, and, and so like, it's just been, it, it gives you perspective. And I think one of the things you might be picking up on from the Baha'is, you know, is the purpose of this life is to prepare us for the next one. So we're all in the womb. All of us yeah. are basically in the womb. This world is the matrix. This world is the womb. And we're developing our arms and our ears and our eyes and all of these things that we need. But we're developing the spiritual versions for the next world. Because how long were we in the womb when we were babies? Nine months, 10 months? Yeah. We didn't want to build a life there. You didn't build a house there. No. You were just there developing shit. And then you were born out of that world because this one's way better. The Baha'is believe the same thing. We're in the womb. We're in this like dark, shitty place right now. And where we're going is going to be way better. But we need to develop stuff before we get there. Yeah. So, so what you experience is like Baha'u'llah says that <laughs> you know, this life is as significant as the black of an eye of a dead ant. All in the material world, the material world, all of this stuff means as much as the black of an eye of a dead ant. It wasn't enough for him to just say an ant. He said the black of an eye, and then he said the, the ant's dead. That's how much That's this crazy. world means, right? Yeah. So there's an element of detachment that one has to have with this world. And with all of these things, with money, with fame, with success, with all of this stuff, because it doesn't mean anything. In fact, we're told it's all a barrier to true happiness and spirituality, all of the things, all of it actually gets in the way. Those who suffer the most are the ones who attain the most perfection, Abdu'l-Bahá says. And that's what we need in the next world. So the purest of the Baha'is are the ones that are like, hey, bring it on. Yeah, I'm in sure. the spiritual gym right now. All right. I'm doing my reps. I'm punching. I'm like, let's go. I'm here to work out because where I'm going next, I'm going to need those muscles. Um, so that's, that's why I'm willing to look at this and say, hey, I want to question this shit. This is broken. Can we just talk about it and yeah. fix it? I don't have yeah. the answers, but yeah. I want to be, be brave enough to say that I don't know. <laughs> and I want to ask questions. And I want to bring people in that are smarter than me. Let's deconstruct this thing. And maybe we can make people or help people see something that they didn't, couldn't see before. And maybe we can all be a little bit happier. 
Um, at the end of the day, it's about service. The second it stops being about service for me, I can't do it anymore. If I'm too, if it's too much about money or if it's too much about, you know, my own stuff, it's done. It's dead. It's, I might as well move on to something else. And so at its core, everything I touch, the reason I'm so passionate about the things that I touch is because it's about service. Now, it doesn't mean that I'm going to do it perfectly. It doesn't mean that I have all the answers. It doesn't mean that I am not subject to, um, to the impurity and the ego. But the Baha'i faith has given me the tools to at least look at that and be willing to be man enough, if we can call it back to that, to humble myself and say, man, I better work on that. That is my ego. That's my insistent self coming up. That's my shit. That's not even me. That's my trauma. That's my, from my childhood. And then be man enough to apologize. Mm. And then for me, pray for the strength to do better. And every day in the Baha'i faith, we're told to take account of our actions, take account of our deeds, and to pray for the strength to repeat the good things and to ask God for the strength to do better for the things that maybe would not be pleasing to God. But every day we got to do that. So you, you, you put the previous day behind you, you put on your shoes, right? As a man, you put on your boots and you get up and you try again and you're going to fail. It's not going to be perfect. But that's okay, because this is the place to be imperfect, so long as we're trying, and we're trying to be of service, and we believe in something greater than ourselves. That's what brings you back, man. That's the thing. That's the key ingredient, that this life, all of this shit, doesn't mean anything. It's the stuff that we can't take with us when we die. You know, the money, all the material possessions, that's the stuff that gets in the way of the stuff that we actually need to take with us. That is an excellent note to end this conversation on. We didn't get to talk about Wayfair, uh, Wayfair Foundation, Skid Row Carnival of Love, all the other stuff that you have done and will continue to do. Nah. Maybe maybe in two or three more years, we'll do a round two, right? It'll yeah, take us two or three no more worries, years. It's on the calendar. Uh, this conversation will come out April 27, also the day that your book launches. Again, we'll push people to buy it. Incredible work. Um, and speaking of man enough, I am man enough to say that you are a fucking gorgeous human being inside and out. <laughs> Thank you. Buddy. And I'm so grateful for the time we've had today. Thank you so much for spending some time I appreciate with us. it, man. Thanks for creating this space to talk. Thanks for the podcast. I give a damn. That's the show today, my friends. Thank you for spending some time with Justin and me. To learn more about Justin Baldoni, just go Google its name because he's fucking famous. But seriously, Go to manenough.com to learn more about the new book coming out next week and so much more. Please visit letsgiveadam.com to learn more about all things Let's Give a Damn. This next year is going to be crazy. We're building some amazing things and I want you to be a part of them. I want you to be in the loop. So letsgiveadam.com for more. Thank you for showing up today. I'm so grateful for each and every one of you. Chad, Jess, and the team at Sound On Studios made this episode. The music is by our friend Propaganda. You can reach out anytime and for any reason at hello at letsgiveadam.com. I love you all. Be safe. Keep giving a damn. Bye for now.